Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our news editor, Paul Woolbank. Hello. Our senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels. Hello. And on the buttons and talking this week is deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Will I be able to do it? <laughs> and later on, we'll be talking to Meat and Livestock Australia's chief marketer, Graham Yardy, about the Byron Sharp effect. You know, brands need to consistently look at the long term and where they want to get to and what their vision is. And how to deal with a problem like vegans flexitarian diets and uh, veganism, it's on the rise. And the unlikely tasks involved with putting a campaign together. You know, which of these 200 floaties do we choose to be in the shot? And uh, you go, yeah, I really earned my, earned my salary today. You know. But first, the week's topics. The ACCC investigates outdoor. Vice joins BuzzFeed in the global redundancies round. The Press Council steps into the gender pronouns debate. And what does the Financial Royal Commission's report mean for Adland? So, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, launched an investigation into the outdoor industry recently, and news of that broke this week. The person who broke that news was Zoe. It's a murky old sector outdoor, isn't it, Zoe? Just a tiny bit. Just a very small bit. I, I can't believe that after sort of two years, maybe a bit longer writing about outdoor, that this is this is the time that it's coming. That you know, I've been hearing whispers about lots of different things over over. Obviously, things that are just going to be too hard to prove. And now there's this, which will make it interesting. So. What is it about outdoor that creates these sort of rumours? And it's probably worth saying, you know, it's always that thing of, you know, people always say, oh, yeah, it's a bit murky outdoor. And you can never quite put your finger on on how much is in it or not. What what are the issues with outdoor? Well, there's a number of different issues, some that will be tackled by this initial, and it is in its early stages, investigation by the HWC. There's other stuff which I've also spoken a lot about, which is to do with measurements, so being able to prove return on investment for outdoor, particularly with the growth in digital. So essentially before, um, y- you know, you you had a number of billboards and you that you had your time up there X amount of weeks, months, whatever. Now with digital, you've obviously got a lot more slots. People are trading in a different way. It may be taking 80% share of one particular area and that. And it's becoming increasingly hard for brands to be able to understand what they're getting back, who's actually looking at that ad. So to be clear, if you're a big brand back in the day, you could you would have a giant great billboard up above a road somewhere catching X thousands, X millions of, mm. of, of drivers going past potentially over the, let's say, four weeks that, uh, that it was up. Um, you could be reasonably confident that it was getting in front of people. With digital, you're sharing, you're not the only voice on that billboard. Yes, and the price, as I understand it, is higher for those slots as well, just because they've got data behind the back of the screens that can provide them with more insight. And we'll hear much later down the track, I suspect, from John Broom, who leads the Australian Association of National Advertisers, or the AANA, as some of you might call it. He was talking about, you know, we've seen a lot of digital growth in this sector, but it's about the value for marketers and brands. And we're probably still not there yet in terms of being able to translate that. So that's one issue. The other issue, and you sort of touched on it when you said, you know, old school billboards, you were pretty much guaranteed to have your ad up. 
I think the best anecdote I've got is someone telling me, oh, yeah, but, you know, there was just a photographer that used to go in, put the photo up, take a photo, take it down, put the next one up, take a photo, put that one down and add up and then would send them to the to the brands to to make sure that they were getting or, or were seen to be getting their time up on on one particular billboard. So this would have been when, for instance, an agency had booked on behalf of a client. And of course, you know, the big ad in the middle of Sydney, they're going to see it. But if you're talking, you know, something that's kind of out in kind of, you know, rural New South Wales or somewhere, um, then that question of how is it verified? Definitely. And and obviously that, that anecdote's from years ago when obviously there was a time where digital didn't take up close to or the majority of outdoor revenue. But what that told me, and I heard that anecdote very, very early on in my time at Mumbrella, made me think, ah, interesting, okay. And then slowly that's evolved into things like favours and, and, and sort of kickbacks. And, and obviously we've had a conversation about rebates beyond outdoor. This is just one particular area that, that has obviously come under scrutiny this week. Well, but- let's unpack rebates again mm. because this is one of the things that we think that potentially the ACCC will be looking at is this question of the – it's not as simple as you decide where you want your ad to run and you hand over your money and the ad runs, is it? No, definitely not. And it all comes down to the way that those deals are packaged. Obviously, when you have big companies and a lot of slots – they will be picking probably a couple of, and I'm still getting my head around this myself, you can pick really big areas, obviously, like down the front of a highway or, or a motorway that's obviously incredibly popular. But amongst that, you're not going to get to pick every single ad slot, particularly if it's a massive campaign in multiple markets. You're going to get a deal where you uh, you maybe have paid for those ultra expensive slots and then you get a bunch in together. And there's, I think, a bit of confusion around whether or not those slots are being given for free that was definitely mentioned as part of this initial investigation and whether that actually impacts uh, on or, or, or is a misuse of market power which you can see why it started to come up when the mergers have happened in the outdoor sector between JC Deco and APN Outdoor and O Media and Ad Shell. You can see how this is probably evolved. Because these are big players mm. and of course there's no I guess what we're talking about in the context of the ACCC investigation, it is market power, competition. So we should probably be clear that some of the murkiness we're talking about, you know, there's no evidence that that involves the big players. No, not at all. And for all we know, and and you have to think about other things like regulation for a company like JC Co, for instance, uh, the European because they're reporting into Europe, they have some of the tightest regulation around this stuff in the world. So obviously there are things like that. There's none of this is indicating that these players are guilty or any other players in market. But what has happened clearly is someone or some people have raised concerns that this has been going on in the outdoor sector. And as I told you today, I mean, the conversations I had yesterday after we published that story and and the comments you saw in our comment thread Everyone's just like, oh, grab the popcorn, you know, like Pandora's box is opening. You, people are just going, this is exactly what I expect. This person's going to be, or not this person, rather, this this group will be stuffed. Are they looking into the agencies as well? You know, it, it's, it's kind of ignited this fire and everyone again going, maybe this is all going to come out. I suppose the question is, though, do you think it will come out? <sighs> I really, really hope that... Whatever is going on, which obviously is all alleged, you can't prove, some of it comes out. I think it will be incredibly hard to prove a lot of what is said to be going on. This 
industry as a whole is very good at covering tracks when it comes to discussions around rebates and discounts. What I suspect and and, and what I guess I, I would hope to happen from this investigation and the information they've been requested is maybe a bit more arises that they probably weren't aware of beyond just looking at coming off the back of these mergers. Maybe they'll look into other things because people will advise them of that. Obviously, that will just be a case of them having those discussions. And, and I believe that an initial investigation usually is in and out within three months. So it will just depend on how much information they get from the people they approached um, now and, and whether or not they take it to an in-depth investigation. The best case scenario would be to go further to be able to get more information so that they can look and do a much deeper dive. But we won't know that for, for a while. Next, voices redundancies. So we started the week with the news that Vice would be laying off 10% of its staff globally. And that comes very shortly after BuzzFeed's recent announcement that it will be doing the same to about 15% of its staff, including some of those in Australia. Um, Zoe, I'll start with you on this one as well as, as, as this kind of comes from your media beat. Now, the funny thing about Vice Australia is, it, although obviously it's globally owned, it really does feel like a strong Australian brand. It's been here so long. Mm, it definitely does. And I'm, I think we were talking about this earlier. It did feel like a number of brands, probably BuzzFeed I'd put in that camp too, where you felt like even though they were part of a big US business, they definitely had their own place in this market. People knew them as Vice Media Australia or BuzzFeed Australia. And know them. They're not, we should be clear, they're not going anywhere. No, 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 they're not going anywhere at all. No, they're, 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 they're current. They're not going anywhere. They'll, they'll exist in a different form. But it's always felt as though they have been very independent of their parent companies and this two weeks has made it feel a bit less like that I would say that we can definitely see that even though they are creating the content that's relevant to our audience which is obviously very different to other markets ultimately they're as influenced as everyone else when their big parent company needs to restructure and become profitable and 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 make cuts Paul we we are seeing a bit of a kind of global drumbeat aren't we around various certainly big global media companies, almost having a bit of a kind of return to rationality. It really is. And what you can't help but think this is because all the froth's gone out of the private equity model. So uh, all of this cheap um, cheap funds that were available, lots of runway for these companies to spend lots of money on nice offices and big headcounts. And now all of a sudden that money's running out. They have to find savings somewhere and refocus that business model as well. So advice, they had a new CEO come in, um, I think it was in October last year. And obviously she's gone through, looked at where they can go next and uh, get a bit more runway out of the funds they've got left in the piggy bank. It's a point that uh, Ben Shepard made in an opinion piece for us this week as well, is that uh, the funding levels for both Vice and BuzzFeed were almost Im- unprecedented in the publishing landscape. He pointed out that that Vice were being funded at almost the same rate as Facebook at one point, which just when you consider the difference between those two companies, it does seem quite ridiculous. But there was a point where they were the coolest kids around. Everyone wanted to fund them because they saw that unprecedented growth across social, across traffic. They knew how to talk to youth. They knew how to talk to the youth. But 
I don't know if that is enough to build a sustainable publishing model. And clearly it's not because, you know, they're having to make these cuts now. Well, this comes to a whole thing about digital journalism as well, where most of the money is going into Google and Facebook's pockets. It's not going into the publishers. And so even if BuzzFeed and uh, Vice were making insanely uh, great amounts of revenue, they wouldn't be profitable because that money is going into the digital platforms. And I think it's something that when we saw the Facebook algorithm shift, and I know I mention it quite a lot on this podcast, but I think it was something that really did cause these publishers to take a look at themselves and think, hang on a minute, we were growing at an unprecedented rate on things like Facebook, but if those algorithms can't be trusted to remain as they were, then we need to think of other ways to, you know, remain profitable. So I guess it kind of at least has the potential to create a bit more of a level playing field for traditional media. Definitely. And I think there's probably a little bit within the traditional media that have gone, ha ha, told you, <laughs> it's not all, you know, rainbows and butterflies and all of that. And so, cat gifts. And cat gifts. Um, I think that it definitely shows that our, the audience has changed over time. What is interesting to see is that obviously the traditional media have been talking a lot about paywalls or donations or ways to essentially get the consumer to pay. I think that's a very interesting point in light of all this change happening. When I think about, you know, what happened to BuzzFeed or Vice and and to Paul's point and Ben Shepard's point, everything is valid. You also have to think about, okay, you were dependent on a model from advertising again, which the newspapers are a great example of what happens when you just depend on ad spend. We've seen circulation figures and, and ad revenue declining year on year for as long as I've been in this role. The other thing, of course, is, as you mentioned, Josie, Facebook and being dependent on a third-party platform for audience. So you're dependent not on your readers to bring in the revenue and you're getting your audience to come in from platforms that you essentially have no control over. That's obviously a challenge. Do I think paywalls are the option? Not necessarily, because I don't know if the content or the people that read that content would pay for that content. Traditional publishers have had the advantage where they can promote the legacy, high quality, rigorous processes that they've had for decades. And that's why you should pay because you used to pay for our paper. So just pay for it online. And, and I, when I actually did the numbers the other day. It's very cheap to get a yearly subscription for a digital uh, for a newspaper's digital assets as opposed to paying every single day for a, for a paper as people used to. But I don't know what the solution is for these guys other than and stripping back and, and focusing on areas that are obviously going to drive more revenue because they were dependent on what the newspapers learned the hard way was advertising advertisers spent and we've talked about market pressures um, and and the pressures that um, brands are under in terms of their own cost cuts and and how that's affecting spend in various sectors I think we spoke about that last week so you know you're looking at these businesses that have ultimately worked their way up yes through through uh, funding and then all of a sudden all of the bits and cracks that didn't work with the traditional publishers it's also not worked for them. I don't know. It's 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 interesting. And something else which which struck me both with the the Buzzfeed case and also I think with Vice as well is the Australian staff don't don't seem to get to find out what's actually happening to them as quickly as the staff back in the US, for instance. What what's going on there? There's probably a lot of things. One of them, obviously, being that these businesses are based out of the US and and in, there are a lot of big markets as well that they've obviously got to make a lot of cuts 
and I'm sure that it's a priority list and stuff. But I, I think you, Tim, had another point about consultations and um, the fact that we need to do them in Australia versus it's not as required in other markets. Yes, arguably there's a little bit more employment protection, which of course on the one hand means that you you are supposed to be consulted if you're being considered for a redundancy. But of course the frustrating thing about that is sometimes that means that um, you actually don't get to get as much certainty. And certainly that was something I detected in a lot of the kind of tweets, particularly from the BuzzFeed staff, was there was just that bit of frustration. They really didn't know whether, what was going to happen to them or not. And I think part of that problem too is that uh, they haven't at BuzzFeed, they haven't really articulated what the direction is. So when you see companies go through redundancies, let's take Telstra with what this is 8,000 redundancies. Regardless of whether you think Andy Penn's strategy is valid or not, at least there is a strategy there. So you working in one department know that you're probably going to get hit quite hard because you're not part of that new strategy. Whereas in another department, you think, well, our jobs are probably all right because we're at the forefront of the CEO's new strategy. That hasn't been articulated by BuzzFeed. And uh, so that would add to the uncertainty. Where is this going to go? Next, the Daily Mail and Nine, both in trouble with the press watchdog. Daily Mail Australia and Nine.com.au were criticised by the Australian Press Council this week over two articles which it judged carried substantial prejudice to the transgender community. Now, the Press Watchdog's ruling said that publications must take greater care not to place unwarranted emphasis on characteristics such as race, religion, nationality, country of origin gender, sexual orientation and marital status. Um, Zoe, these particular rulings, what were they about? Um, Basically, the story was about, in in both articles, was about the sister of Manly Seagulls player, Dylan Walker. Uh, His sister was being uh, charged with her boyfriend's death. That was basically the crux of it. The, the problem essentially arose because of the use of the words transgender. So Dylan Walker's sister is openly transgender. It was very clear, and, and in both instances, Nine and Daily Mail's, they both argued, well, she was openly transgender on her social media account. It's factually correct and relevant in this instance. Essentially, the, the, the problem arose there because of the use of the word transgender in a case about manslaughter could insinuate that people who identify as transgender are also the kind of people that would be charged over their boyfriend's death or something to that effect. So in other words, if it had been one small piece of information somewhere further down the story, in the same way you might say the suburb someone lives in, Mm. that might be appropriate, but putting a headline or higher in an article, it's giving unfair emphasis. So I think in Nine's instance, they actually only used the word transgender once and that was enough to be in breach. Essentially what they were saying is it's not relevant in this context you were factually correct and they they never neither of them were found in breach of being factually incorrect or presenting the information in a fair or unbalanced way where they fell short was the the use of the word transgender was not relevant and it could in that situation cause substantial prejudice if you're a reader that doesn't know a lot about this case or this person you might go oh well, a transgender person did it and then have an unconscious bias or, or, or a conscious bias towards people who identify as transgender, which is something that's evolved over time. I remember when I when I wrote this piece, I thought, 
I've definitely written up or, or we have written up rulings similar to this where they have been found in breach or in breach or they've been issued warnings by the APC. What I've seen over this sort of 18 months is that now you're actually in breach if you if you do use that word or, or any word. It doesn't have to be transgender when it's not relevant to describe a person. It would be the same as saying a person, an African person, charged with manslaughter over boyfriend's death or any you could do white person we've seen issues around the australian press um or or, or certain parts of the australian press talking about crime issues in melbourne for instance and using the phrase african gangs or Mm. of african appearance exactly so there's obviously this has become this has come up particularly it'll become particularly prevalent probably in my last year i've noticed that particularly in the apc's case they've been pulling up people that do use uh, descriptors like like that that could insinuate or, or, or cause prejudice further down the track. That's definitely been something that's changed. The interesting thing about the APC, of course, is that they don't – you can't get fined. You can't be j- jailed or fired over, over the, the essential slap on the wrist that you get. All, all you have to do, depending on, is put up – and, and recognise in particular because these are both um, online websites that they were in breach. And they have to publish the ruling. And they have to publish the ruling, exactly. And obviously in some instances, if it was in a, in a print article as well, you'll get the ruling published in print, occasionally an apology, but there's no leg- legislation around the APC. Next, once you've bankers... So this week, Commissioner Hayne released the final report into Australia's financial services industry. Paul, you reported the good news that Australia's advertisers have escaped from widespread criticism in that final report. They really did uh, dodge a bullet on this. And it was interesting, though, that... that Despite uh, getting a reasonably tickle with a feather, uh, the banks, uh, we still saw one of the CEOs out handing out the big issue to show just what a nice chap of the people he is. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so this was Shane Elliott, the CEO of ANZ Bank, did a photo call with that's right. Um, with Big Issue, the, the 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 hours ahead of the report being published. That's right. So you're you're saying that was a a piece of cynical PR. Um, I'm probably being a very cynical person to suggest that. But, uh, yeah, that was my impression with it. Um, I did get a laugh uh, uh, seeing them doing it. And when we say that the advertisers uh, avoided widespread criticism, were they in the in the targets then? There was a possibility that uh, the Royal Commission would find that uh, some of the advertising, some of the marketing was un, uh, unrepresentative. And uh, really, there's the only people that were really affected by it were the superannuation side of things that uh, so they were quite critical of the vertical integration with the banks so you go in and the teller you want to find out the balance in a thing and the teller's there would you be interested in moving your superannuation across uh, a lot of a lot of that came under fire but um, the broader advertising really didn't get uh, pulled up at all but it was discussed in the investigation that's stages. right yes yeah. uh, were they being misleading um, in some of the advertising uh, Commissioner Hain really didn't consider it at all so we saw uh, NAB uh, come under particular attention Ken Henry the chairman uh, the CEO as well um as we record this on Thursday, this is one of those things where you always want to check your email has Ken Henry resigned yet um <laughs> 
it feels like it was so critical. Surely it's a matter of time until these people have to go. But also, surely we've seen it happen again and again. And it's such a PR issue. And we know how the PR story is going to unfold mm. and the crisis management. And sooner or later, they will go. Why? Why? Why don't they get the better advice at the senior level that this is such a big issue? It's one you can't win. Yeah, I think really, and I'm probably being cynical again on this, it's hubris that uh, these senior executives uh, feel that they've done the right thing, uh, feel that uh, they should be untouchable. And as a consequence, they feel, I shouldn't go, I shouldn't fall on my sword. Uh, There was a few underlings that did that. Uh, This culture isn't really my fault because I've all along had these high morals that we've been putting in our company's mission statement or whatever i thought it was interesting i um i particularly enjoyed the rear window column in the afr earlier in the week where uh i assume it was joe aston but it might have been um uh, miriam who wrote it but i think it was joe uh, describing ken henry as a smug prick which um i suppose first of all i thought well that's quite interesting given um fairfax's rules about um, dealing with the issue rather than the person, uh, uh, as we saw with the battle with Clementine Ford, who who recently um, uh, parted ways. But but I suppose also um, a very strong defence of fair comment. Yeah, well, it was definitely Joe because he shared it on his LinkedIn profile too. So I think we can be pretty safe on that. Uh, it's interesting though with Ken Henry. The uh, this guy came out of the global financial crisis ten years ago as Australia's hero that he saved the Australian economy. And now his uh, reputation is in tatters. It's uh, a very interesting PR on how he gets back from that. I think with the marketing efforts going forward as well, there's going to have to be a big shift from the banks because at the moment the advertising is always very vague. It's not actually related to banking itself. It's always about helping or bringing Australians together or some sort of generic positive message. But I think going forward, the marketing is going to have to be very factual very logical and pointing out the things that they've done wrong and trying to say basically we are aware we messed up and we want to make it better at the moment that's not coming across in the advertising at all this is a good point you bring up i I, i'll probably be writing about this in best of the week at the weekend i was looking back at a uh, a really big award-winning marketing campaign which is just I think February the 14th, it will hit its seven-year anniversary and it won the the gold line for PR at Cannes. It was for NAB, the Mm. breakup, when they were breaking up with all of the other banks because they're not like the other banks. Well, they're not like the other banks, as we saw this (laughs) week. Probably not the same way. (laughs) And that, to me, is the question, is if you're an advertising agency, you can never actually know what you're what your client is really about can you zoe you know you can have a brief and you can report it you don't know whether they really like other banks or not do you not at all and when we and i I remember when i was writing about the ad agencies and they were talking about you know funnel like top of the funnel all the way down so the ads need to correlate to the people that you deal with in the banks i actually changed banks three times in in eight months a year and a half ago i'm no longer with one of the big four which is probably a good thing based on what i've read this week but What I am always astounded with, and I've always liked the creative that's come out of the agencies with all of the banks, I've always really enjoyed it, is that it's never correlated with any experience I've ever had in a bank ever, ever. There is no bit where I go, you've the way that you presented yourself or the way you've positioned the brand has really come across to me in any interaction with banks. So now I just, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those barefoot investor ING people who've joined that club. 
and obviously that's a very different thing again because I don't have a bank to go into every single day. I have to go to other ATMs. But I have been astounded by just how far removed the ads are to everything that's happened in the Royal Commission. Although in saying that, I caught the train this morning and there was a brilliant outdoor ad at Edgecliff Station for a new bank, I think, it, or not a new bank rather, just not one of the big four, that basically was using the Royal Commission as leverage to promote themselves. And I think that's a lot of what we'll see is these smaller banks that uh, can play into, okay, you don't trust the big ones, that's going to be a huge challenge for the ad agencies of the big four. Let us come up and rise. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw increased marketing budgets from those banks because this is their opportunity. If you're a regular listener of Mumbrella Cast, you might want to check out our latest conference, Mumbrella Audio Land. Join us on May 2, where we'll be talking about podcasting, production, listener habits, smart audio, and other emerging trends covering the entire audio space. Check out the Mumbrella events page or go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash audio land for more info and to grab your early bird tickets. So that was the voice of our agency's writer, Abigail Dawson. And next, Abby will be joined by Josie to talk lamb. Joining us as our guest on this week's Mumbrella Cast is Meat and Livestock Australia's domestic market manager, Graham Yardy. Thanks for joining us, Graham. Also joining us on the buttons is deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. So um, just to kick things off, Graham, you've been at Meat and Livestock Australia for just over a year now. What was it like coming into a pretty famous brand with strong advertising capabilities and expectations? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely daunting. You know, you you come with a, an expectation of uh, what some of those relationships are going to be like creatively. Um, I think you come with this, um, you know, somewhat of a confidence of you think you can deliver something different. But you also, yeah, come with the weight of expectation of there will be lots of eyeballs on you. And, uh, but, you know, that's exciting. I think as marketers, you know, if you don't step up, want to step up and do that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the challenge and part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. And MLA is obviously very well known for its once was Australia Day lamb campaigns, which are now more known as, as your summer campaigns. Can you talk me through the strategy and and the thinking behind kind of this annual summer campaign? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think, I think what we've done really so well in the past is always find something topical that is the classic, you know, you know, in the States, you call it the water cooler conversation, but for us, it's the barbecue conversation. You know, you're standing around with a mate and you, you know, you're talking about something that is you know, on the minds of people and everyone has an opinion on. So, you know, we're not setting out to cause a controversy and pit people against each other. That's definitely not. It's about actually bringing people together over something that is actually probably entertaining to talk about. Mm. And I think we've done that route so well over the past and um, this year is no different. And so I think this idea that we can bring people together and find a common idea that people will love to talk about. I mean, we... Uh, you know, we're representing, you know, lamb and it's a massive industry. It's something that people have the opportunity to purchase every day of the week. And we're in, you know, we're, uh, we have a, we've got to get noticed. And, you know, I think we can do that by really smart scripts, 
great production, um, but by driving a concept or an idea that is just has great talkability value. And I, I think that's one thing, you know, our creative partners do so well for us. So talk us through, I, I want to hear what it was like in the room where you came up with <laughs> the idea for this year's summer ad. Now, also for those who haven't seen it, which I'm sure probably isn't very many of you, we might just play a little clip of it now. We used to be the greatest country on earth, but we've lost the plot. Cheating at sport, can't even hang on to a prime minister. There's only one obvious solution, don't you think? I agree. What are you thinking? We finally make New Zealand part of us. Genius. We create one nation. We'll workshop another name. Obviously, it's a lot better with the visuals, so (laughs) go and have a look if you haven't seen it. But yeah, Graham, what was it like in the room when you were coming up with that idea? Yeah, I think think this is where this this is a little bit of the moment you you Mm. get that. All right, you know... Let's let's hopefully really see the you know see the goodness you know come out and uh, and there is that slight apprehensive moment of right right you know the unveil of the creative idea and I think with this one there was just this unanimous like yeah that's funny and um, you know Scott Detrick the you know the, the CD there at um, at the Monkeys you know he he loves to you know do great voices and you know will sing occasionally for us to bring something <laughs> to life and. Uh, I think we all just, you know, the room was just laughing at all the right places. And I think the, you know, there was this definitely this moment afterwards of like, yeah, we, we, there's something here. This is going to be great. And, um, you know, there was definitely some back and forth and some things of go, you know, how do we make sure this is as relevant? And, you know, what's that level of, you know, spiciness we want to have in there that's going to, it's going to get the talkability. And, um, but yeah, I think we definitely felt, rel- you know, just, just relieved after that to go, yeah, there's something here, there's something that, and, and you just get that sense in the room, you know, you can just tell uh, the energy about different different ideas and this one definitely had all the energy for mm. sure so uh, you guys did a campaign maybe around six months ago which which had um sort of remember someone sitting in a spa and it was all about kind of meat really being the center of the campaign and it was was less political than than other campaigns you've done and you know then your summer campaign came out a few a few weeks ago and it kind of was was back to the what mla is known for and, and the politics talk me through you know, why you, you sort of stepped back from the politics in that campaign and sort of brought the meat to the centre of it and then kind of went back to the to the MLA special flavour for the Summer Day campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you've got – if you look in the broad full year of our, our plan, um, it makes a lot more sense. And so – and even in the campaign as we, we look at it for summer, so – the ad and the creative and um, everything around that is supported by a full a full mix of path to purchase media, um, a whole lot of work with retailers, and a whole lot of other pieces that is designed to really focus in on the you know selling more lamb, which is what we <laughs> ultimately mm. we're looking to do. Um, so the Too Easy um, campaign in uh, for spring lamb is another part, big seasonal time for lamb, uh, probably much more product focused. And was very much designed to have a product message, which is about, you know, lamb is easier to cook than you think, which when you look at the consumer research, that's something that, you know, people replay back to us. Actually, I find it hard to cook. So we sort of went straight for the straight for the jugular, if you like, on that one. And that actually will continue to play at certain times of the year to really drive home that product and that versatility message. So, you know, we really understand that at this time of the year, this is the time when we really want to create yeah, that barbecue conversation, because this is a time when, you know, a lot of people are still on holidays and summer and we're entertaining more. So to have that talkability, is just, it's just a great part of the year. 
to bring that to life. So it's very much about having lamb out there at this time, mm. um, but we're still driving a versatility and ease message um, at other points of time through the year and also through other um, through other media as well. And, uh, you know, just to bring it back to the campaign that you did recently, mm. how do you – I mean, doing a political campaign is certainly very risky because there are always going to be people that have things to say about it, but how do you know – when to draw back from the politics and when to push harder sort of how do you find that that line because it's it, it is quite a fine line and it's it's tricky to balance mm. yeah i mean i think i think the first point is though it, it we don't set it out to be a political campaign it, uh, we we see it as a cultural or topical thing and you know there was a couple of um uh, you know, in the creative development where we were really looking back at the year and really going, hey, what are some of those big stories? And there were some definitely some things that we focused on early on. We said, you know, is, is this as relevant? Is this stuff that has come and gone and hasn't made news? Or is does this build to a larger story? And, you know, I think the the political elements of it are purely a byproduct of the the, the year and the, and the um, you know, the topicality of it. And so that's how it... Ended up quite being funny uh, when we did it, and uh, you know it stuck. Um, you know, you know Hemsworth jokes. Uh, you know we love those. So. <laughs> um, in a recent uh, Mumbrella campaign review, uh, one senior creative because we reviewed MLA on there. Um, one senior creative said this year's ad, uh, and I quote this: "Didn't have true cultural tension." Do you feel like this ad had true? This year's ad had true cultural tension. I think, I think maybe not, you know, tension's maybe not the right word, right? You know, I think tension is, you know, I think it's sort of like, um, uh, I, I think it's just one of those things that people love to talk about. And, you know, while you can put a lot of weight into what you see on social and comments and things like that, I think you run a risk there as well. But I think some of the most funniest comments I've read are literally ones where people are going, imagine if, and... Hey, if that's what gets people talking, um, fantastic, you know. And um, I think, I think the great thing is that you can have this banter with, <laughs> you know, uh, Kiwis about it, and um, and you know, it's uh, it works. Now, the the market for me is an ever changing thing. You know, veganism is on the rise, vegetarianism is on the rise, and I know you've actually called out vegans and vegetarians. <laughs> well, MLA has in previous ads. How how do you think about that, and and is it something that you're concerned about, or is it just something that you you, you know? We we monitor that um, as a situation. We're obviously you know MLA. I think you know we're actually famous for deep diving into consumer insights and what's what's happening in the market and trying to understand and obviously really working towards activating those those key purchase drivers and and people's motivations there. And um, you know, I think the people following more, you know, flexitarian diets and uh, veganism, it's on the rise. The data says it's not as much as you would gather mm. from, but it gets a, a huge amount of media coverage. Mm. Um, but when you look at our challenge that we have for lamb, actually we have a far greater opportunity, I guess, to look at the other proteins that we're competing against, which we've always had, and for us to be top of mind, for us to be seen as good value to be seen as a great premium meat that's going to taste great so all those benefits that we have um there's still so much opportunity for us so it's not to discount it 
It's not to dismiss it. We know people are going to choose to follow whatever diet or, or eating behavior they want to do. That's fine. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, if someone's made that choice, you know, a lamb out is probably not going to make <laughs> them change. Yeah. <laughs> um, True. But, you know, we know the vast majority of people still love to eat lamb and we'd like them to see them eat it more frequently. And I sort of just want to ask you a little bit more about uh, MLA and, and the monkey's strategy of bringing people together over lamb, which which has been a strategy that's, you know, been around for, you know, I'd say almost five years. Um uh, do you is this a strategy that you think is going to continue on through more ads, or are you feeling, or can we predict that there's going to be a change in strategy anytime soon? And what's the key to keeping the same strategy each year, but making it making it different, putting a different flavour on it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one thing we we did a bit of work last year with the monkeys around, and I would say strengthening the strategy. Um, you know, I think one of the opportunities for us is to drive a sort of deeper emotional connection around the bringing the people together and what food can do. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, we're, uh, we're, uh, you know, uh, you know, at MLA, we, you know, we represent, you know, lamb producers and, and that's, that's who pays the bills and that's who we answer to. But, you know, I, I really believe, you know, we're a food company and we have to talk about the power of food and what it can do. And I think lamb is really well um, positioned with this, you know, identity around bringing people together. And I think what we haven't really brought to life yet is that, is that why, um, you know, the message of, well, well, why is it so important to come together? And, you know, we've talked about things like diversity and, uh, you know, celebrating that. Um, but, you know, there is a power in eating together and sharing something over a meal. And, you know, it's not, not that we're going to, you know, go all, you know, uh, Hallmark movie on you, but... Uh, <laughs> Lamb's not going to change the world just yet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Maybe it is. That's it. But uh, I think the uh, the ability to explore, you know, um, you know, a bit more of that why, I think, can, um, can be a next iteration of, of strategy rather than a change because, you know, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy with the strategy. It works pretty hard for us. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned a lot about the monkeys and you also work with UM and as your media agency and One Green Bean as your PR agency. Talk me through uh, the relationship that MLA has with its agencies and, you know, obviously the monkeys are involved from the get-go, but how do you work with your media and PR agency as well? And are they are they involved in the conversation from the very start of the process or talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, uh, you know, we, we brief our agencies together. So from day one, they are included in whether it's the you know the pre-planning, whether it's some tissue sessions to get some territories um, sort of more out in the table. And I think that's probably one of the bigger changes we've done this year is probably just to, you know, rather than brief and, you know, we'll see you in a, a month's time with the ideas, we've, we've sort of started, you know, roughing out a couple of those territories a little bit more and probably being a bit more iterative in the in the process as we move along. And all the agencies are involved in that. Um, and... I think where they're adding a lot of value is, you know, especially in something like for our summer lamb campaign, you know, OGB really brings that earned media perspective of, hey, yeah, this is, this is, there's good hooks in this, you know, we can see that. And then UM brings the, you know, the partnerships and, um, you know, the mix between earned and paid and thinking how that's going to work. And, and I think, um, 
you know, by the time we get to, yeah, signing off scripts, we've got a pretty firm picture of how this is going to play in a lot of different touch points and how that interaction will happen. And and also, and I think when you're talking about things where you're going to be very topical and you're expecting um, a further conversation to take place that is relatively organic out there, you know, we're already sort of, you know, probably like wargaming a little bit. Okay, what about if this happened? Um, how might we amplify that? How might we... Um, counter that um, and to have those agencies in the room you know just you just feel I think a lot more prepared going out and I think obviously much more ready to take advantage of you know some of the opportunities like the last couple of weeks. And I would imagine the PR strategy when it comes to an ad that you almost are guaranteed is going to get coverage is very different to an ad where you're <laughs> trying to get that coverage and maybe <laughs> trying and failing with this one you know that you're going to get that coverage so is it is it really does it feel quite different when you're planning that PR strategy? Oh, okay. uh, Absolutely. I think the uh, the ability to, um, you know, personally, I'd say I've never worked on a <laughs> on a campaign where there's actually people sort of lining up to, yeah. uh, you know, when are we getting it? When yeah. are we going to see it? And, um, and you know, how can we leverage this? So, you know, that's, that's very, been very new to me this year, but, uh, but it's, it's encouraging. And I think the idea that, you know, you can, people are interested in a little bit of the creative process or what you're trying to do. And, um, and a little bit why you've done it, I think, you know, hey, it's a, it's a privilege, right? And we were just talking before we started recording about how there's been a lot of other brands who've, who've jumped on this campaign. Obviously, Tourism New Zealand have been a big one, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. How's that been for you? Yeah, like, I mean, you know, someone sent me the link to the Pure New Zealand website, and like, you know, I had to give them like a little golf clap, you know, it's just like... <laughs> mm. Kudos, you know, you know, three three days in, and you know they've completely like reskinned the website and you know <laughs> run the copy, and it's clever, and uh, so you know you gotta you gotta say well mm-hmm. done, um, and but uh, yeah, so it's interesting, it's interesting to see where it goes, and obviously there's been a fair few inquiries about how we can potentially collaborate and things like that, and you know we have our, I guess we have a bit of a strategy around that, and um, some of that will will play out, um, you know, very soon. And a lot of it is about seizing on that, as you called it earlier, the water cooler or barbecue <laughs> moment. Um, we, we were actually, just before we came in here to record, we were looking at a video that we saw from Shutterstock. And I don't know if you've seen the Fire Festival Netflix documentary that everyone is talking about. <laughs> what Shutterstock had done is took a lot of their footage and they remade that promo Fire Festival video with their Shutterstock footage. And I just thought that that is the perfect way to jump on board a water cooler moment. Yeah. And it's so important for brands to do these days. Yeah, I think that ability to be, you know, agile with uh, with what's happening out there, and you know, the, the news moves so fast. And what was a big story last week, and whatever it might be, you know, politics, society, culture, whatever it is, you know, next week was probably we've probably moved on to the next sensational story in a lot of ways. So, um, for a brand to be, you know, agile enough to, you know, make some you know, make some hay out of that. It's, it's <laughs> impressive and it really is a skill of, a, you know, the, the marketer and creative teams these days. And that's that's really about, you know, actually having that synergy and being in sync and agencies understanding what brands are trying to do. Um, but also, you know, brands to be brave enough to mm. to, to make, those, make those changes. And, um, yeah, you know, when... Uh, you know, bravery is interesting. I think it's, uh, you know, spoken about this quite a lot in our podcast is, is something that the industry does struggle with in advertising sometimes. But the other thing that I think uh, the industry and agencies and clients struggle with is that consistency um, client and agency relationship. So obviously when you came on board a year and a bit ago replacing former um, uh, 
CMO Andrew Howie, uh, you guys have obviously kept the monkeys as, as your creative agency of record. How important is is uh, consistency for effective advertising? Yeah, I think it's I think it's incredibly important. Um, you know, I'm I'm very much a uh, you know a student of probably you know the Byron Sharp world of uh, um, of marketing science, and you know I think that long you know and, and even in this environment you know where we've got you know fragmented media landscape you know we've got a 24-hour news cycle you know brands need to consistently look at the long term and where they want to get to and what their vision is and so i guess you know having partners on the journey that really get what you're trying to do and you know will challenge you and and help to push you further um but having them to understand you know what is you know what? Are, what is the right side of the line, and what's the other side of the line, if you like? And um, but, you know, I think one of the opportunities to go: how do you think beyond campaigns, and almost mm. like how do you go a couple of campaigns out and go, mm. okay, how do these all sort of link together and get you to a, a different place, closer to the vision of what you have for the brand and your business and delivering? So, um, yeah, it's it's consistency is really important. And what has been your favourite meat and livestock Australia ad so far? You can't say one you've done yourself. <laughs> okay, uh, look, look, I love our. I still love the celebration spot. I think that yeah. was that was great. You know, it's it's epic. Um, you know, it has some great lines in it, um, and I think uh, getting a bit of behind the scenes stories of uh, you know, I guess some of how that was made and everything is. Uh, you know, it was really interesting and, you know, it was probably the one that really stood out for me before I, I came on board. So, yeah, it's probably one of my favourites. So, But I'm also partial to the uh, one of the older ones with the, you know, the dog scratching on the butcher's window too. Just <laughs> <laughs> simple's good. So, you know, looking forward a couple of years, what, what can we expect to see from MLA? Yeah, look, I mean, I think one of the things we're going to look for is, um, and we talked about a little bit earlier about, just the consistency of, you know, through our, through our year, you know, we've got to sort of think about how do we um, be much more present in people's minds around, you know, both meat, uh, both beef and lamb. So um, point of purchase, yes, but, you know, how are we going to sort of drive that message much more frequently, with much more frequency? That's going to be a big thing for us. But I think what you're going to see is probably us act probably a little bit more like a food company rather than just a, um, um, you know, uh, an advertiser of meat, if you like, because, uh, you know, we're sort of uh, sort of fighting with one arm behind our back at the moment. So, you know, we're still going to be making sure that, you know, our advertising is going to cut through. It's going to be noticed. Um, but what we need to do is make sure it's remembered and it's understood so that when people actually get to the store, they're going to make that conscious decision. Um, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to, you know, tell some different stories and some different media channels and things like that. So, you know, we've only really started to, I guess, have more social conversations and those things. We have been, um, you know, big film sort of uh, people for the last couple of years and we've sort of started to really work on a bit more of a, a, a cleverer social strategy. And so that's a probably a focus for us this year, I think, as a way to tell some different stories um, and some stories to take us in some extra places. And, you know, if you take the idea of something like lamb, where you talk about, you know, bringing people together, well, it's sort of rich territory for content. It's mm. a rich territory for partnerships um, and, um, you know, things like giving back. And and um, and there's some really, you know, we, we obviously um, 
think we have some great stories to tell in that space uh, and, you know, keeping lamb relevant in that space as well. And, uh, you know, there are some brands arguing that TV advertising isn't as relevant anymore. A couple of years ago at at our retail marketing summit, KFC told us how they'd essentially halved their, their TV advertising budget. Is it still an effective way of advertising for MLA? I mean, personally, you know, I think I, I look at TV, you know, I, rather than say TV, I, I, this is this is video, this is film, you know, and uh, and where you put it, you know, that's where you've got to really think about the strategy. And, you know, it's still a fantastic storytelling medium. And, you know, it might be catch-up TV, it might be pre-roll, um, rather than just a straight buy on free-to-air. And obviously with some of the acquisitions and things like that are going in the you know in the the media space this ability to amplify your story across different channels and publications and publisher platforms i mean if you look at that holistically and if you start with the story and then you perhaps work with partners you know i think that's where it sort of fits into it i mean people are still going to love to watch things on the big screen uh on on the biggest screen they can but obviously you know phones and tablets and in transit and all kinds of things is um, is the way to go. But, you know, I think we're always going to be very visual storytellers. Um, that's definitely part of our brands. And, you know, we love a good jingle and all those sort of things. So, uh, hey, you know, one of the hot tips might be, you know, ra- radio. Jingles are back. You heard <laughs> it here first. <laughs> yeah, we love a good jingle. Uh, yeah. So, hey, look, podcasts, radio, you know, that uh, could be the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say there are – there are few ads that I will I will on my two screens here at work stop and full size something on the Big Mac <laughs> and sort of put my hands you know across my hands and sit back and just watch and enjoy it. But I would say uh, annually MLA is one of those ads that I you know full screen stop looking at the other one attention forward and and I would agree with you in the sense that I think good storytelling works wherever it is and and wherever you're watching it but MLA is great to watch on a bigger screen yeah well we like to put little (laughs) things in the background too that you just forces you to watch again and uh there's it's funny there's you know with the production there's uh definitely some things that had to happen in post and there's a couple of things that uh we just couldn't fix so uh you know, you can go again and have a look at some did, of those things and see if you can find them. I did pause it on the the big wide shot where you've got all of the people there floating in the little mm. floaties in the sea, and I thought, who had to make that? Because that would have taken a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where you, uh, you you sort of go, what were the decisions I made today? And then you realize it was a decision about, you know, which of these two hundred floaties do we choose to be in the shot? And uh, you go, yeah, I really earned my earned my salary today. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Sam Kekovich as well is obviously always a good touch. Joe's actually put together a sort of little collage of mm, of Sam. A video jump cut of every Sam appearance. Yeah, yeah. Will he be back next year? Sam is. Uh, he is such a. He's such a like, obviously larger than life personality, mm. and he. I mean, the guy just like lives and breathes lamb, and uh, you know he'll he'll call us from uh, you know somewhere in somewhere in Australia, and he's you know doing a you know he he does a heap of work with charity, and you know we're constantly sort of sending you know lamb to some charity dinner, and uh, he's out there you know he spruiking truly it. Is uh, a brand ambassador. Uh, he, he is a lamb ambassador. He totally is. Um, so yeah, so he's uh, 
he's a pretty integral part of uh, what, you know, the summer campaign is. Yeah. Cool. Well, unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much for joining us, no Graham. Great. Thanks. Thank you. It's been great. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Big news from the newest conference we're running, Umbrella Audio Land. The president of Edison Research, Larry Rosen, will be flying in from New Jersey to present the keynote session. Edison Research is behind the longest-running study of consumer behaviour around media technology in America, called the Infinite Dial. It's been going since 1998 and now has an Australian version as well. Larry will be premiering some of the latest research from the study at the Mumbrella Audio Land event. It takes place on May the 2nd in Sydney. Early bird tickets are currently available. Save $100 if you book now. And that's all for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank